Welcome to the Radical Christian Bible Study Podcast. I'm your host, Wes McAdams. Here, we have one simple goal, learn to love like Jesus. Thank you so much for being with us today. We are restarting our podcast after a short break uh, for the summer. I hope that you have had a wonderful summer, and I'm excited about jumping back into some more Bible studies with you. We have been doing this series even before the break about what does this passage mean, in which we've been looking at various passages of Scripture, many of which have been sent in by listeners like you, and we have been talking about what does the passage mean, and how does it apply to our lives, and interpreting and applying applying it uh, to our everyday life, specifically in helping us learn to love like Jesus. I received an email a few weeks ago from Abby Kaplan, uh, who told me about a book that she had written. It is called Misreading Ritual, and I was able to read it after she sent me that email. She specifically wanted us to discuss Leviticus chapter 15, and so I've invited her on the podcast today, and we are going to talk about Leviticus chapter 15, which is a, a challenging and difficult passage. It's about bodily emissions. I'm not sure what all we're going to get into in this discussion. It may be a discussion that's better for adults than it is for kids, so you might want to be aware of that even before we get into our discussion today. But I'm looking forward to this discussion because I very much enjoyed this book on the first half of the book of Leviticus, and I'm specifically interested in talking about how this helps us to learn to love like Jesus. Hope you enjoy this conversation. Hey Abby, we are we are uh, excited, or I'm excited to to have this conversation with you today. I just got done reading your book, uh, and it was so it was so good, and and that that is that is something given the fact that Leviticus is not a book that most people uh, think about uh, studying or even think about enjoying studying. Uh, which that actually is my first question for you is just uh, why why Leviticus? Why this first half of Leviticus? These rituals and sacrifices and all these things that so many Many of us modern Westerners look at and say that's so strange, and there's so much blood and guts and all kinds of mm-hmm. gross things. Why? Why? What got you interested in studying this book? Well, and so you know, a lot of people report the experience of you know they go to read the Bible straight through and they get to Leviticus and it's you know it's a barrier. It's just you know this is weird and gross and I don't know what to do about this. And that was that was never really my experience. I wasn't. I, w- I, w- I wouldn't say that I was always intrigued by it, but I would, you know, I would get to Leviticus and I'd read about the sacrificial rituals and the ritual purity laws, and it was always just kind of, huh, that's interesting. I wonder what that was about. Um, move on. But um, in uh, about 2011, um, I um, I came to a place where I had some uh, I had some time to do some reading, and I decided I wanted to read one of the Anchor Bible commentaries, and I was about to go to a conference, and I knew that I would have, you know, some downtime, so I said, okay, I'm going to get an Anchor Bible commentary, bring it for the plane, and for, you know, uh, you know, downtime, and so on, and so I literally walked into the library, and I said, I'm going to get whichever commentary uh, was most recently published that they have on the shelf, um, so I, I didn't know, you know, didn't know what I wanted to read. And the one that they had 
was Leviticus, was, was volume one of Jacob Milgram's uh, Leviticus, which, by the way, was published in 1991. So that tells you that the library had not um, updated their collection uh, very recently. So I was like, okay, I guess it's Leviticus. And I checked it out. And, and I don't know what it was about it, but I was hooked. Um, it was um, the most, uh, detailed discussion, um, you know, for that, for the first, that first volume, you know, starting out of, of the, the sacrificial rituals that I had read, um, and, uh, took them seriously, um, in a way that I had not really encountered before. Um, and it, I just, I would, I was hooked. I thought it was, I thought it was fascinating. And I thought there were a lot of riches there that I had not really seen explored elsewhere. Um, and so, um, that's that's how I got into it. Well, that is fantastic. And and what I really like about your book is it's it's incredibly in depth. I mean, there's so much history. Mm-hmm. There's there's all of these different interpretations uh, from different periods of of history and how people have looked at Leviticus and some of the the ritual and ceremony and sacrifices. Uh, but also, mm-hmm. it's so accessible, and I think anybody could pick <laughs> it up and 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 come away with a better appreciation for Leviticus. And it strikes me as a Christian, and you you touch on this a little bit, and I know we're going to get to Leviticus 15 and talk about bodily emissions mm-hmm. and all of that, but uh, it's a, we're not going to go too deep on sacrifices, but as a Christian, I, I've often remarked how how we sort of assume that people should know what it means that Jesus is our sacrifice or that Jesus was sacrificed on our behalf when Mm -hmm. that is such a literally foreign concept to us. Um, And Mm -hmm. I I really think that that not only the book of Leviticus, but the way you have, have brought it to us makes a helps us to have a better understanding for what it means that Jesus is our sacrifice because that's such a that's such a foreign idea to us we don't we don't sacrifice animals and so uh, the ancient world even outside of of Judaism would have been familiar mm-hmm. with with that concept much more than than us anything anything in regards to sacrifice you think that that needs to be shared before we get into the rest of it I think uh, for me, and, and one of the, one of the reasons that I wrote the book was that, you know, when I was reading about Leviticus, I thought there is so much amazing stuff out there um, that a lot of it, you know, you know, some of it is presented in a, you know, in a lay context, but a lot of it is kind of sequestered away in more mm. academic type of materials, which, you know, given my, you know, given my background, my first career was as an academic, I'm happy to read that. But like most people, that's not really their thing, which is, which is fine. And so I wanted to say, I wanted essentially to, to speak to fellow Christians, say, hey, look at all this ama- these, these, these amazing riches in the, in the theology of sacrifice that a lot of us have just have missed out on. Um, but I think, um, uh, so before before I read um, uh, or about I guess about about the same time that I was reading material on Leviticus, I had also wound up uh, doing a deep dive on theories of the atonement, and so mm-hmm. I was kind of primed for um, a a diversity of understandings of how it is that Jesus' death saves us, and so I was kind of primed for you know understanding sacrifice in the same way, and that's exactly. Um, what you see in the different kinds of sacrifices in those first seven chapters of Leviticus is that sacrifice isn't just one thing, it's many things because our relationships with God, our relationship with God isn't just one thing, it's many things. And so sacrifice 
offered to ancient people in a way that was culturally appropriate for them, many different uh, ways and modes of approaching God. And Jesus' death does the same thing for us. It's, it's fellowship with God. It's worship of God. It's cleansing, cleansing from sin. It's, it's all of those things um, in a way that, um, you know, often we, often we flatten if we only talk about it in, um, in penal substitutionary terms. Yes, and I think that's so incredibly helpful, especially to, because I think that the way that modern Westerners, or at least the way I grew up thinking about Jesus's death, was completely removed and detached from the sacrificial system and those categories that the the Old mm-hmm. Testament creates for us, and and so I would think of it more like it, at, you know, as the the term penal substitution implies, I would think of it like a courtroom as if I was on trial and then Jesus took mm-hmm. my place personally. And that not mm-hmm. only not only reduces what Jesus has done, it also radically individualizes what Jesus has mm-hmm. done. And and the book of Leviticus, it helps us to to fill out these categories so much more broadly. And I love that you that you approached it in such a way that you didn't reduce reduce anything there's so much um <laughs> still still so much uh, beauty and uh, maybe even ambiguity here there's so much that we don't understand mm-hmm. uh, but that's that's kind of the beauty of it and when we try to uh to make it all uh, you use the word flatten when we flatten it all out we really reduce what jesus has done and and the relationship that we have with god in christ yeah. And um when one analogy i like to use is that you know even if you know, so i'm not I'm not a big fan of penal substitution, but if, you know, but, but if, you know, for anybody who, who, you know, takes that as their, as their primary model, that person is still my brother or sister in Christ. Like these aren't, these aren't salvation issues in terms of our our theories about how it works. Um, But, but even if you take, um, you know, if you take penal substitution as the only thing, then it's kind of like, you know, it's, you know, imagine that I invite you to my house for a Thanksgiving dinner and serve, you know, all kinds of delicious food and then tell you, by the way, tell your friends they're invited to come next year for Thanksgiving dinner. And then if you go home and tell your friends, you know, I went to Abby's house for Thanksgiving and she served the best green beans I've ever had. You are all invited to go to her house and have some green beans. I'd be like, that's great. There were green beans and they were delicious, but it wasn't the only thing. There were, there was other stuff too, you know? So. Yeah. Oh, that's that's a really good metaphor. I like that. Uh, and that really kind of leads us to the next question. And that is, as we think about the book of Leviticus, before we even get to chapter 15, what are some of the, the categories that we un- need to understand, the themes that we need to understand, or, or maybe correct some misunderstandings that we tend to approach the book with? I think, um, so a lot of it, it's really easy to read as commands and it, it feels weird to say that as a criticism because they are you know in a lot of ways framed as commands right um, but maybe maybe one thing that's helpful is to understand why these commands right so you know if you think about Leviticus in the context of of all of scripture if you think about it in the context of the Pentateuch right the story of the those first few books of the of the Old Testament is you know in Genesis God um, uh, is choosing for himself a people who will be called by his name. I will be their God and they will be my people. He chooses Abraham and says, you know, your family will be my special possession. Um, And then Exodus, he takes his people who is enslaved in Egypt and brings them out, right, and sets them free. 
And Book of Exodus makes it clear that it's not just freedom from, it's also freedom for, right? And so Exodus ends not with the, you know, the parting of the Red Sea and getting away from Pharaoh, which is, of course, our favorite part. It's my favorite part, right? It's a great story. But it ends with the construction of the tabernacle, which is, you know, mm-hmm. now that this people is no longer enslaved, now God will live among them. And that's the, you know, that's the beautiful climactic moment at the end of Exodus. And so Leviticus starts off, you know, with God giving these um, directions to Moses at the tent of meeting. And so uh, Leviticus is like, you know, okay, now we've been set free. Now we are God's people and God is dwelling among us. Well, what now? What does that look like? And so if we think of Leviticus as, you know, here's where the rubber meets the road. Here's what life with God is going to look like. I think that helps us have some context for why we've had, you know, two books of these great stories, you know, that, that everybody likes that we do in Sunday school. And all of a sudden we get to these dry laws. Well, it's not just laws for the sake of laws. It's laws because here's, here's what it's going to look like when people and God are, are living together. So. Yeah, no, I think that's, I think that's perfect. And I think that even couching the entirety, uh, the entirety of scripture, the, the entire narrative of what God mm-hmm. intends for us, uh, eschatologically as well, that God wants mm-hmm. to dwell with his people. That's how Revelation ends. And and to mm-hmm. see the tabernacle as this sort of foretaste of the new heavens and new earth, of, of what God is mm-hmm. going to bring about, and that God is living with his people. But but even in that, maybe, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but, you know, it it seems like it, it is a, it is a, I, I hesitate to use the word dangerous, but you know, to use C.S. Lewis's language from from the Chronicles of Narnia, you know, God is in a sense dangerous, and for us to mm-hmm. to dwell with God, this awesome, holy, powerful God, for us mortals to live with God is is complicated, and and so these it seems to me that these laws are are this is this invitation for how how the Israelites can live with this holy God, even though they themselves are, are mortal and, and are, are very much human. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's exactly right. And that, you know, when Moses goes up on the mountain in, in Exodus, you know, when he's actually, you know, when it, you know, when the, when the, the story tells that Moses goes up and he's gone for 40 days and the Israelites are, are like, you know, we don't know what's up with that. Um, you know, that, that, you know, it always seemed a little strange to me that the instructions he gets right there are instructions about building the tabernacle. So it's not the Ten Commandments he gets on the mountain. The Ten Commandments come mm-hmm. to everybody, right? And then he goes up on the mountain. It's it's really Moses goes away um, not because, you know, God's laws are distant, but he goes away to get instructions for how to bring God into the community. Um, mm-hmm. And then... Uh, and then with, you know, with some some false starts, because there was the whole thing with the golden calf and so on, you know, there it looked for a minute like the project of God living with, with his people was was maybe not going to work. But, it you know, by the end of Exodus, we've, we've got the tabernacle, we've got God here. And OK, well, you know, just like with, uh, you know, with any kind of relationship, how, how are we going to what's this thing actually going to look like? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And and talk, if you would, a little bit about the idea that we we typically have about Leviticus that 
and, and I've heard it preached this way, and I'm probably even guilty. As I was reading your book, I was, mm-hmm. you know, I was kind of cringing at thinking back to things I've probably said in the past, um, and and thinking about the law as if it was supposed to be burdensome, as if it was supposed to be this this bad thing that caused people mm-hmm. to long for something better. Um, mm-hmm. I, you you really lay forth a, a way of interpreting <laughs> and understanding Leviticus that it, it's not that. Yeah, well, I think it's I think it's two things. It's that it's it's not intended to be that, and also that people didn't experience it that way, right? Mm, um, yeah. And and when you talk about cringing, you know, I you know I I cringe also because that's this is this is kind of the way I used to think about it, and so you know the fingers yeah. are pointed at everybody. Um, um, but I mean, you know, if we if we think about it that way, then it makes no sense that throughout the whole Hebrew scriptures we have you know testimony after testimony of how I love your law. You know, your law mm-hmm. is perfect and good and gives light to the eyes. And, you know, it, it's so great. And if, if people hated it all the time, then it seems awfully strange that that's not, you know, that, that that's not recorded anywhere, right? You know, the, the Psalms record people complaining against God in very plain terms, but we don't have complaints about that those sacrifices are just, you know, I, I can't stand it. And it's, you know, I'm tired of it and all that. Um, so it seems like it was, um, you know, I like to I like to think of it as God speaking the Israelites' language, right? So when we read about these sacrifices, that's not something I do. Um, when we read about the the ritual purity regulations, right? And you'll be considered ceremonially unclean, and there are these washings and all that kind of stuff. Uh, that's not something that I do, um, except in a very different context, you know, for for like literal hygiene. But you know, for for ceremonial purposes, it's not a thing. And so if I try to imagine me doing those things. Of course, it seems like a burden because for me mm-hmm. it would be. Um, but in in their context, lots of neighboring cultures did similar kinds of things. And so, if you know, if sacrifice was just known in that you know known in that culture as oh that's that's a thing you do to approach God, then it's as though God is saying okay, um, you know, sacrifice is a way that you understand how to approach the divine. So let me give you better ways to do it. You know. Mm. Um, and, um, it also just doesn't, you know, it doesn't, seems to me out of character with God to give rules for the sole purpose of making us unhappy, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it, that, you know, again, because we don't have experiences with these kinds of practices, you know, when we read about, okay, you will be unclean for seven days and you do this, or you'll bring this sacrifice with this ritual, it, it seems like a pointless rule, right? It seems like we're doing this, but we don't know why. Um, mm. And so for in, in that sense, it, it feels like a burden. But if you have a, a cultural system that th- that has meaning, assigns meaning to those things, and it doesn't seem arbitrary or burdensome, it, you know, is a meaningful way to encounter God. Yeah, absolutely. One of the passages that kept coming to my mind as I read this, and Jesus was specifically mm-hmm. talking about the Sabbath, but he said that the Sabbath mm-hmm. wasn't made for— or man wasn't made for the Sabbath, but the Sabbath for man. And it really Mm -hmm. occurred to me, and I never really thought Mm -hmm. about that before until I was reading your book, how all of these, it's possible for us to understand all of these in that same sense, that that man wasn't created for the law. The law was created for man to be able to bring God and humanity together, to bring God and specifically Israel in this case, together Mm -hmm. into covenant relationship. And what a what a beautiful thing. And like you said, as the psalmist talks about it in Psalm 119, he, he loves the law. He loves what, what, it, uh, what it does for him. And I, I think sometimes we don't, 
we don't think of it as doing something for the worshiper. We think of it as doing something for God, maybe, but not necessarily for the worshiper. And I love how you laid it out mm-hmm. so that it, it helps us to understand that this was for them. It was for their good. It was for their benefit. Yeah. And and also, um, one thing that, that Jacob Milgram talked a lot about that I had not really um, appreciated before was that you can, um, you can also understand some of these rituals as as having ethics kind of embedded in them, right? So when we do talk about Leviticus, you know, our favorite parts are like the the descriptions of the of the annual feasts, right? Or Leviticus 19, which is what Jesus is quoting when he says the you know the second command is to love your neighbor as yourself. Or you know, Leviticus 19 has all the best stuff, right? It has you know, <laughs> don't mistreat the alien because you were aliens in the land of Egypt, and you know, mm-hmm. don't harvest the edges of your fields, leave those for the poor, all all those kinds of things. Um, but uh, Jacob Milgram argues that um, even some of the things that we see as pure ritual, um, you can understand them as being like a dramatic acting out of um, of ethical principles as well. You know, so like the most obvious example is the the um, the Asham sacrifice, which is the one where, in addition to bringing the sacrifice, you also have to pay back the person the money that you stole from the person, right? And so, so it's. Um, a very embodied way of acting out, you know, this is how we live in community with God and with each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and, and let's talk a little bit about the idea of, because we tend to make everything in, with scripture, especially, but as, but even in Leviticus, we tend to think of everything in moral categories, right? And so we mm-hmm. we tend to think about this purity, impurity, cleanliness, or, or uh, mm-hmm. uncleanness as being moral categories, as if being mm-hmm. unclean is to to sin. And you really help to mm-hmm. distinguish those ideas. So if you would talk a little bit about that and how we need some more categories other than just right and wrong or sin and righteousness. Yeah. Um, and uh, uh, the work of Jonathan Clawins was, was really helpful for me in, in kind of explicitly understanding this distinction that that scripture talks about sin in lots of ways including talking about sin as as uncleanness right um but that um the ritual uncleanness the ritual impurity system is treated in ways that are systematically different so it's it's very easy on kind of a it's very easy to read it and see all these, you know, see all these ideas of uncleanness and pollution and, and impurity and all that, and to sort of read it the same way in every context um, and to associate all of those things with sin. And that's, that's also psychologically natural, right? So Richard Beck has, has done a lot of work on how, you know, as humans, um, something in our psychological makeup associates wrongdoing with uncleanness and impurity. Um, but that if you actually, if you pay careful attention to the vocabulary that's used and to sort of the the restrictions that happen, uh, the, the restrictions that are in place on these different kinds of situations, what you see is that the ritual impurity system is different from moral impurity, that, that moral impurity is a way of talking about uh, the consequences of sin and the consequences of wrongdoing, that they are communal, that they, they, they affect the whole community, um, that they affect the ability of the community to live in the presence of God. Um, whereas um, ritual impurity is not, um, uh, is not uh, connected with wrongdoing, or at least not necessarily. Um, mm-hmm. That essentially the only consequence 
mostly of being ritually impure is that you are temporarily restricted from going physically to the sanctuary or from touching things like holy food that was set apart from the priests. Um, and um, as has been acknowledged by lots of interpreters, including Jewish interpreters who lived with these practices, right? Um, most of us are going to spend a large portion of our lives being in a state of ritual impurity because of the, the things that cause ritual impurity. And so uh, becoming ritually impure, the, the things that cause it are not sinful. The thing that is sinful is either causing it unnecessarily or deliberately bringing that impurity, you know, to the sanctuary, right? So the, the analogy that I, that I like and that, you know, that I use in the book is that um, if you eat a messy food, right, you're going to get messy, you're going to get crumbs on the floor, and you're going to have to clean up afterwards. And that's just how it works, right? Um, but cleaning up the crumbs afterwards is not a punishment for eating the messy mm -hmm. food in the first place, you know, that, you know, I, um, I like it when my children eat dinner, it's not a sin for them to eat dinner. And sometimes I command them to eat dinner, right? Um, but I know they're going to get, they're going to be crumbs on the floor afterward. And part of their job, part of their job is just to clean it up. And we only get into, you know, things that they would be, you know, reprimanded for if they don't clean it up when they're supposed to, or if they are, you know, careless and, you know, eating a cornbread muffin, you know, like leaning back like this and we're like, eat over your plate. You know, that's, you know, you're making more crumbs than you have to, that kind of thing. But the, the impurity itself is not sinful and isn't supposed to be understood that way. And I think that's so helpful. And in fact, even just the way you said that about sometimes you command your children to do things mm -hmm. that will end up causing them to be messy or ca causing mm -hmm. them to, to create a mess. It was so helpful in the book for you to mm -hmm. just spell out those things that that God commanded them to, for instance, bury a dead body, even though burying a dead mm -hmm. body, touching the dead body would make them ritually unclean. It wasn't a sin mm -hmm. for them to touch the body. In fact, they, they had to touch the body or, or for Jesus mm -hmm. to touch the leper. It wasn't a sin for mm -hmm. him to touch a leper, even though it would technically mm -hmm. make him ritually unclean. So having that distinction mm -hmm. in mind that it isn't a sin to be ritually unclean, that it, it's simply a sin to, to persist in that or to take that into the tabernacle or to not care about uh, these purity laws. Mm -hmm. Yep. So, and that's so not to say that... Oh, go ahead. No, I'm sorry. No, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh, just just on the on the point of uh, Jesus touching the leper, that's not to say, you know, when, when people talk about how powerful it would be for Jesus to touch the leper because he would have been isolated, I think, I think you know, those kinds of lessons are still true, right? Um, that, you know, the, 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 um, the regulations in the, uh, you know, in, in Leviticus about, you know, the person with the skin disease, um, those really are very isolating and, and like to a greater degree than for any other kind of ritual impurity. And, um, you know, for people who would prefer not to contract impurity, right, the, you know, the leper or the, the person with the skin disease, you know, really is going to be isolated. And so that, that doesn't mean that it wasn't, you know, a powerful thing for Jesus to say, you know, I don't care about contracting this impurity, you know, your wholeness, you know, and, and concern for you is more important. That can, that can still be true. Um, but, but we don't have to go further and sort of caricature the society he lived in by saying, well, he was breaking a law or the Pharisees mm -hmm. would have been outraged that he did this wrong thing. You know, it can still be powerful, um, you know, uh, even within, you know, the context of how we know the, the, the regulations actually worked. Yeah. And there's another, and I'm sure that there's probably already people 
thinking this in the back of their mind, uh, because it's something that I hear all the time when we talk about Leviticus, is sort of this assumption that that God was giving Israel sort of this behind-the-scenes look at what they they couldn't have known scientifically yet, that God mm-hmm. was sort of giving them uh, the in and out of, of germs and hygiene mm-hmm. and, and how to avoid bacteria and germs and these kinds of things. And you do a yeah. really good job of dispelling that. So if you would talk to that and why that's not the best lens through which to read this book. I think that maybe the, the for me, the most convincing argument about against that is that um, the particular regulations aren't actually very good at doing mm. public hygiene, you know? I mean, it, surely it would have been more effective to say, okay, after you relieve yourself, you must wash your hands, right? That's very simple. That's more simple than some of the things that we actually see in Leviticus, uh, but that's not there, right? Um, and it, it feels like hygiene to us because of the washings, right? So we're used to doing washings for hygienic reasons. Um, and because um, of this association with things that we know to carry germs, like uh, dead bodies or like, uh, you know, bodily emissions. Um, but the, the focus, um, it, it doesn't target conditions that are necessarily contagious. It, they, they're conditions that could be contagious, but it, it wouldn't have been that hard to make it more focused, right? So, um, you know, the, you know uh, the only kind of fluid coming from your body that these uh, that these regulations care about is uh, genital discharges. So don't care about snot, right? Don't care about vomit. And those things are also kind of gross. Uh, you know, sneeze into your elbow, that's very easy. Uh, wash things that get thrown up on, that's very easy. Um, and that's just not done. So, um, so if you're if you're going to say that God was sort of trying to like secretly teach Israel um, hygiene, then you'd have to say that God wasn't very good at that. And I'm not I'm not mm. ready to take that step. Um, and that suggests that perhaps these laws are about something else. And the um, uh, the other thing that I find convincing is that uh, you know other other cultures that had similar kinds of practices, like the Greeks, you know, had similar ideas about impurity, um, and did it in ways that look awfully social. Um, so, you know, similarly, you would be impure from contact with a dead body, but also you're more impure if it's your family member than if you're just an acquaintance, right? And you could be impure on the anniversary of the death, or you could be impure even if you were really far away when the person died. And so that looks, that doesn't look like, um, it doesn't look like maybe they noticed that people got diseases from dead bodies and were trying to regulate that. That looks a lot like they're using impurity language to talk about, you know, how they expect people to react after the death of a loved one, right? And and um, and I think that lens uh, makes a lot more sense of what we actually see in Leviticus. Yeah, and I think that's really helpful, and I think it's important. I I I always hate to curtail people's enthusiasm for scripture, um, and, and I appreciate that that people try to use this as sort of an unapologetic to say, "Well, mm-hmm. see, this is how we know scripture is from God," because. But as you mm-hmm. said, other ancient people had very similar laws, and so that it doesn't really work as an apologetic. And mm-hmm. I think that we really miss what what we're supposed to be learning from this, or at least what Israel was mm-hmm. supposed to be learning from this, and the way it was supposed to be shaping them if we read it through this mm-hmm. modern scientific lens rather than the lens through which we're supposed to be reading it. So that really kind of helps us to segue to uh, this very strange chapter of <laughs> Leviticus 15. So uh, let's talk about, uh, as, as uncomfortable as as this chapter is, uh, let's talk about mm-hmm. bodily emissions and, and, uh, and, and what we should be seeing there, what 
people see there that they might not should see there? How should we interpret this this chapter? Yeah. Um, so one thing that I um, really nerdily enjoy about this chapter is the the structure of it, right? Um, so um, this chapter, it's a, it's a very clear, well-defined passage, right? It has a, a very clear topic that runs all the way through it. Um, and it is structured in this kind of concentric way, right? So you have um, a sort of a, a ABCBA kind of structure. So you have first a passage on um, what we would call um, abnormal or unusual or atypical male discharges, right? So this is, if a man has a discharge and it's, you know, and it's not normal, then here are the, you know, here are the regulations, right? And this is where we get these kinds of things that really look like hygiene to us. It's right, you know, okay, if he, you know, if he, every bed he sits on will be unclean, you know, you know, anybody who touches his bed has to wash his hands. Um, you know, if he spits on somebody, that person will be unclean. You know, if he sits on a saddle, that will be unclean. Right? That, that sounds a lot like hygiene. And so it's, you know, there are a lot of these details. So first section is on abnormal male discharge. Um, and we have, um, regulations for after you are cleansed of the discharge, after the discharge has resolved itself, uh, then you bring um, a sacrifice. Um, and we can, uh, if you want, we can talk about kind of the, what, why that would be called a, a sin offering uh, in most translations in a bit. Um, so we have abnormal male discharges. Then we have a shorter section on ordinary male discharges, basically just ejaculation, right? And so that is a, a more minor impurity, uh, doesn't require any kind of sacrifice. Um, and then we have in the middle, a very short um, uh, statement that if, if you have a, a male-female intercourse, then both of them are ritually impure. And so we've gone from abnormal to normal, uh, both, both male to male-female intercourse. And then we start mirroring the first part. So, so after that center bit, we have normal female dis discharges, namely menstruation. And so you have, there is no uh, sacrifice involved for ordinary menstruation. Um, it just describes, you know, the, you know, what becomes impure and when and so on. Um, so that mirrors the, the normal uh, male discharge. And at the end, you have a section mirroring the very first section on excuse me, abnormal female discharges. That would be some kind of um, emission, you know, beyond uh, the expected duration of a period. Um, and that one also is more severe um, in terms of just the, the severity of the impurity than the, the normal female discharge, analogous to the difference for males. Um, and at the end, for the, for the female, at the end of that period of impurity, there's also a sacrifice there. Um, so it is this, um, you know, I love symmetrical things. They're great. Uh, so you have, the, you know, you have this uh, symmetrical structure. You have male in the first half, female in the second half, and, you know, the, uh, the joining in the middle. And you have in the outer sections uh, discussion of abnormal discharges. And then in the inner sections, you have discussion of normal discharges, including in the middle, normal in the context of intercourse. Um, so this is the structure of the thing. That doesn't tell us why it's there in the first place. Um, I do think um, that it's interesting to read because one criticism that I have heard of these laws is that essentially that they're misogynistic, right? That they uh, target women as being impure and sort of shame them for, for menstruating, which is a natural bodily function. And so why does it do that? And um, that's not to say that we don't see 
sexism in the Bible, right? Because, you know, it was, that, that was a culture where sexism existed. So of course we see, you know, all kinds of stories where that, where that comes up. Um, but I don't think this particular passage is one where we see that in the same way, right? It's, it's structured in this very, um, balanced way. Um, and, you know, on the one hand, you could make the argument, you know, if you look at the details of what the consequences of the impurity are, um, uh, menstruation seems to be a little bit more severe than ejaculation, right? The ordinary female versus the ordinary male. Um, but on the other hand, for at least for a lot of women, you would expect the menstruation to be fairly fairly predictable, right? Whereas, um, you know, for men, maybe less predictable and also possibly more frequent. Um, and so it's uh, it's not to say that that these laws are setting up an egalitarian feminist paradise because because they're not. Um, but I do think that it's, it's helpful to remember the distinction between, you know, what the passage says and ways it's been applied later. And certainly, you know, as the, as the books, uh, as the book talks about, um, there's a long history of applying these only to women, um, you know, because because of course there is. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So so let's talk a little bit so, about yep. why 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 this, and then why mm-hmm. the sacrifices as well. So so yeah. why why regulate? Yeah. Why make bodily emissions? Um, and 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 you you do a good job of of applying this to other mm-hmm. types of ritual impurity. But since we're specifically talking mm-hmm. about this, yeah. why is this tied to impurity? And then why is there a sacrifice attached to it if it's not a matter of sin? Yeah. So the two, um, the two kind of thematic approaches to this that I find the most compelling, um, which um, you could say are kind of, kind of related, are um, the idea that this is about um, reverence um, and particularly about reverence for our embodied life before God. And mm. that this is also about um, reverence at the boundaries between life and death. Um mm. So well, let's talk about the life and death one first. So um, one thread that a lot of people have noticed running through the sources of ritual impurity, which you know, basically the, the three major categories are dead bodies, um, uh, genital emissions, and uh, skin diseases, um, is that there are, they all seem to be involved with either death or the, or in the case of skin diseases, the appearance of death, right? Um, and so um, in the case of genital discharges, um, you know, interpreters have said, well, maybe the, um, you know, the, the loss of, of fluid from this important place represents something like a loss of life, right? Um, or some interpreters have said, well, what we've got here, particularly in the, play, in the case of intercourse, which is, um, you know, the way of creating new life, maybe what we've got here is not just death, but it's, you know, the boundaries between life and death, that um, this is um, something that is, you know, that is important, that is not to be taken lightly. And uh, for that reason, we should approach, um, you know, we should approach life and death with, with seriousness and with reverence. And so that the, um, the regulations around these things are essentially ways to, um, to encourage us to say that these are not, you know, not to be dealt with flippantly. These are, uh, these are things to be approached uh, with seriousness. Um, and I think, I, for, for me, I think that's helpful. Um, and I think that um, gives us a way to read this that doesn't require us to then implement exactly these practices, right? Um, because in our culture, if we started doing these practices, I don't think that would speak life into into most people's lives, right? You know, most people, if they started doing, you know, you know, observing these kinds of restrictions, they're not going to do that and say, oh, yes, I should be more respectful of life, right? That's, that's probably not going to happen. But we can, you know, what we can do as interpreters, we can, is we can then say, if this is encouraging, you know, 
um, respect for the, the boundaries between life and death, well then, how can I show that respect in my particular cultural context? Yeah, um, that's very helpful. And kind of the other, the, the one that I see as, as being related is this idea of, of reverence, right? So um, um, there are interpreters who've, who've talked about ritual impurity in general as being like, um, the, one, one phrase I like is palace etiquette, right? So it's, mm. it's this idea that we don't, that similarly to the boundaries between life and death, we don't approach God lightly or flippantly, right? Um, and just like there are particular things you would do if you come into the presence of a king or a queen, well, then there are particular things you would do if you come into the presence of God. And so that would mean um, not having recently been in contact with a dead body, not having recently had a, a genital omission, things like that. And so it's not, you know, it's not saying you are bad because you are menstruating. It's, it's um, rather saying that um, uh, we are, um, there are sort of particular circumstances and particular kinds of preparation, you know, that, you know, we follow before bringing into the presence of God. Um, um, and there's even a way, so the, so the, one thing I like about that is that that helps us make sense of um, uh, some of the ways that these purity regulations were relaxed in certain circumstances by, uh, by later, you know, by later Jewish interpreters, right? So we have evidence that, um, you know, there were there were times in the Middle Ages when certain um, communities would say, you know, even though they didn't have the temple anymore, they would say, well, menstruating women should not come into the synagogue, which is not my favorite interpretation, but okay, that's what they did. Um, but we have evidence that even some of these communities would say, well, if it's Yom Kippur, man, that's real sad if you can't come in, you know, just because you're on your period. So in Yom Kippur, everybody come on in. It's, it's fine, right? So it's a way of saying, you know, in general, we want to be careful in how we approach God, but but that this is not intended to to make that into an exclusive thing of, you know, you are unworthy. You cannot approach mm -hmm. God. So it's, it's meant to be, you know, life-giving and, you know, uh, and reverence-inducing um, and not restrictive or inclusive. And I think there's a lot that we can learn from that also. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's really helpful, and I I think that that really helps us to give more categories to to this uh, to this concept. So, thinking about that, why why do you think that there are and and you do a really good job in the first few chapters of the book laying out the different types of sacrifices and and the reasons for mm -hmm. those sacrifices. And I love I love the metaphor mm -hmm. of the bringing of flowers. I think that's a great metaphor. Oh, the way uh -huh. a man might bring uh, his his date uh, a bouquet of flowers and and that mm -hmm. is sort of like the sacrifices that people would bring uh, to help us to realize that there's more there's more reasons why a person might bring a mm -hmm. sacrifice than simply to say I'm sorry um, and I shouldn't have done mm -hmm. this but but talk us mm -hmm. through why why there would be sacrifices attached to these sort of very ordinary natural bodily functions why would someone have to offer a sacrifice for those things yeah um, so I think partly we are misled by the way that that this particular sacrifice, the chatat, which is usually translated as the sin offering, right? Um, when, when we see it translated as sin offering, our reaction is to say, oh, it's because you're a sinner, right? Mm. Um, and I think that's, we are, this is not a, I'm not saying this is not a modern or not a specifically English problem, right? That this is, you know, there, uh, there, there are, you know, you can find um, Jewish and Christian interpreters going, going way, way back who also said, well, you know, 
the the woman so you also have a sacrifice after a woman gives birth and well it's because she's a sinner and let's figure out why she's a sinner you know uh but the the text makes it pretty clear that there's no sin involved here right it's it no the you know having your period or having a you know sorry having a uh, having a discharge beyond your normal period or having gonorrhea um is not in itself sinful right um but the um the the chetat, the sin offering the reason we translate it as the sin offering is because um the hebrew word is is from the same root that means sin um but and i think this is like my top favorite thing i have ever learned about leviticus um is the um uh, the way that the verb sin also get, gets used to describe the offering of a sin offering so right, a sin offering is brought in response to sin, right? That makes sense. Uh, Leviticus 4 talks about this. Um, but um, there are passages that describe what you do with the blood of the sin offering. Um, so Leviticus, Leviticus 8 has a, has a verse where Moses is offering a sin offering. He puts the blood on the horns of the altar. And it literally says that when he did that, he sinned the altar. Um, but it's not the, the ordinary verb form that means sin. It's uh, a verb form of essentially that indicates that you've taken the noun version and turned it back into a verb, right? Hmm. Um, so it's a verb form essentially that means take away the noun, right? So like in English, when we say, if you weed the garden, you're removing the weeds from the garden. If you peel an apple, you're taking the peel off the apple. So when Moses sins the altar, he's taking the sin off of the altar. So it's this, um, again, we're back to this other kind of impurity, this, this you know, moral impurity, that the, the moral impurity has contaminated the altar. And what the sin offering does is it basically wipes it off and it decontaminates the altar. And so um, in the context of the, you know, the, the man with the abnormal discharge or the woman with the abnormal discharge, when they bring a sin offering, um, what that suggests is that it's not that they are, um, you know, being punished because they have sinned, but rather it, it's doing what the sin offering does, which is remove impurity. And in this case, it's this ritual impurity, whereas in the, in the other case, it's moral impurity that was caused by a sin. But the thing that both of those usages have in common is that it is the purification offering or it's the descending offering. Um, and in this case, it's purification that is not even the result of sin. Um, and so it's, um, it's taking this tool that was one part of the sacrificial system and giving it yet another um, you know, element in that rich, you know, that rich multifaceted interpretation of what sacrifice can do for us. It can, um, you know, bring us into the presence of God when our relationship has been uh, disrupted by sin. And it can also bring us into the presence of God after a period of, you know, physical difference. Yeah. Yeah. That's really, that's really helpful. I'm, I'm curious to, to try out a, a phrase on you to see if it, so feel free to tell me if you, you, you think that this is not the right word to use, but I, I, as I thought about the, the term sarks in the, in the Greek, in the new Testament, the way Paul uses mm -hmm. the term that we translate as flesh, uh, sometimes the translators will translate it as uh, sinful nature. And, and, mm. and I really, that bothered me because sometimes he's not necessarily talking about sin. I think that Paul tends to use flesh when he's talking about weakness. And weakness can be both our weakness in our morality and also our mortality. And as I thought about, and of course, as a preacher, I like alliteration, so morality and mortality. And then as I took those sort of those categories to Leviticus, the last time I taught through Leviticus, 
it really struck me a lot of what you were pointing out, this distinction or this boundary between life and death. And I really like the word mortality because all of these things that we we see and experience, whether it's a dead body or it's disease or it's it's new life and birth, all of these things are reminders of our mortality. And and so I really like to think about those because there is a relationship in in the narrative of scripture between our mortality, our our mortal life, so it's life mm-hmm. and it's death. But there's also a, a tie between life and death and sin and righteousness. And all these things are mm-hmm. distinct because we're not sinning by living. We're not sinning by uh, experiencing the natural course of life. But there is a, a tie and an overlap between life and death and sin and righteousness. And I think Leviticus helps us to—it it sort of blurs those lines sometimes, but but there's also a distinction as well. So do you think that's a, a good way or an okay way to talk about it, morality and mortality? I love that, and I think that's a kind of um, a, a really nice, succinct, and, like, and me- memorable— uh, summary of you know we've got moral impurity we've got ritual impurity and there you go there's you've got morality and you've got mortality and they're not the same thing but they are conceptually related it's probably not an accident mm. that some of the language of impurity got used in both places um yeah i love that and i think it also um uh, if we have uh, a solid under- appreciation of Leviticus, then we're also ap- prepared to appreciate why it was so important that Jesus came in the flesh, right? Why Jesus was incarnated, that that God made creation. God, uh, C.S. Lewis has some line about, you know, God likes matter. He created it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, God created us. He created us with bodies. Our bodies are good. And Jesus also had a body. Jesus, you know, dove into this creation that, that God created. God made and there and didn't show us that in order to be holy we sit around and we think holy thoughts all the time right but mm. that it's about living an embodied existence with in community with each other and in community with God yeah absolutely and I think it I think this book and particularly this discussion that that, that you've laid out in the in your book I think Leviticus can really help us to understand that the biblical narrative is, as you said, it's very much an embodied physical story. This isn't about dying and, and being a, a spirit, you know, a disembodied spirit for all eternity. It's about God redeeming our bodies and and our, our bodies and, and all of creation being redeemed and and God restoring our his creation to to its its goodness, restoring its goodness. Um and that really kind of segues to my last thought. And I wanted to ask you this even before I read the last chapter, but then I read the last chapter and I love that you tied this in, in that Jesus says all of the law and the prophets hang on loving God and loving neighbor. And and mm-hmm. if we keep that in mind as we study Leviticus, I'm curious, uh, the tagline for Radically Christian is learning to love like Jesus. So how has Leviticus, and and in particular these, these strange, seemingly strange uh, rituals and ceremonies, how has that helped you to love God and love neighbor even better? Um, I think you know, it's, Talking about embodiment, you know that you know, the, the the idea of sitting around and thinking thoughts about God all the time—that's definitely my weakness, right? I, I was raised mm-hmm. in a very cerebral tradition, you know, um, where we, you know, we do lots of discussion and lots of thinking and lots of reading, and that's my happy place. Um, and um, so, um, 
uh, I would hate to claim that it, uh, maybe it has made me more aware of the ways in which I'm lacking, even though I have not yet done a lot about that, I guess I would say that, um, that, you know, it is, it is, for, for those of us in traditions like this, um, it is worth asking, um, how can we serve God with our bodies and not just mm. with our minds? Um, and um, um, I think also asking, how can we, you know, honor God with our bodies? How can we honor the bodies of other people um, in all the different ways that they're created? I think, you know, if you have a, you know, if your church only puts the young, thin, attractive people on stage, right? What does that mm. say your church values about all the different bodies that, that God has created? Um, in terms of, uh, I know for me, in terms of concrete things, um, I hesitate to say this because I don't think I've been doing a very good job of it. Um, but probably the the concrete thing that I have done most in response to reading about Leviticus is that I have been um, trying to eat less meat, actually. Um mm. Um, uh, in fact, it was, uh, uh, Jacob Milgram's writing on this, that it influenced me the most. Um, he has, um, uh, you know, so, so, you know, as the book talks about that, we haven't talked about it. Um, his argument, which I find really convincing is that, um, the, the, um, the dietary restrictions, which only restrict animals, right. The, in, um, in Leviticus 11, there's not a word about plants, right. Uh, that, that, and the blood prohibition are all in- intended to, uh, to demand respect for these other lives that, that God has created. Um, mm-hmm. And he has a, he, he proposes an interpretation. I'm not sure I'm completely convinced by it, but I found it kind of um, jarring enough that I, I thought I should take it seriously. Um, so when Moses, when God tells, speaks to Moses from the burning bush, he says, take off your sandals, you're on holy ground, right? I always interpreted that as you should be kind of, you know, vulnerable before God, you know, something, something like that. And I think that's, that's a perfectly fine interpretation. Um, but Milgram says, well, in that time, your sandals would have been the only thing on your body made of leather. And so his interpretation is that God is saying, if you come into my presence, you cannot come wearing a dead animal whose death you are responsible for. That is hmm. essentially blasphemous because it's the taking of life that wasn't yours to take. Um, so whether that is, is you know, how we're intended to read that, I don't know. Uh, but that to me was was very, um, um, you know, uh, it, that, that spoke to me. So um, so I'm not, I'm not the primary chef in our house. Uh, and so, uh, I, uh, you know, my husband is an excellent cook. Um, uh, but when I, you know, when I'm in charge of making something or, you know, when I got to eat, I've started making more of an effort to find, you know, things without meat on the menu. Um, and for me, that's kind of a, you know, baby steps in the direction of, um, you know, honoring the, the, the life that God has created in his in his beautiful world. So, yeah, that's really that's really interesting because you, you spend so much time applying Acts 17 or sorry, Leviticus 17, that, mm-hmm. that the, the life of the animal is in the blood and how mm-hmm. really that that is the primary lens through which we, you know, see these sacrifices and these rituals is the is the life that that is in that blood. And and I think I think you're right. I think that um, really reading through the whole the whole of Scripture should give us uh, a, a greater appreciation for the sanctity of life, especially human life, mm-hmm. but but the the life mm-hmm. of all of God's creation. So that's very that's mm-hmm. very interesting. Abby, thank you so much for this conversation. Thank you for your book, and I hope that it helps people to to dig into Leviticus and appreciate uh, the law and the scriptures even more. 
Well, thanks so much for having me. I've really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you. Thank you so much for being part of the Radically Christian Bible Study Podcast today. We hope that you've enjoyed this episode. I want to give a special thanks to Travis Pauly and to our McDermott Road Church family for making this podcast possible. As always, we love you, God loves you, and we hope that you have a wonderful day.